Good morning, everyone. Sometimes after Paul is done, I wonder, do we really need a sermon? And his, uh, his prayer there uh, about the unborn was kind of touching, at least for me. Next week, we'll have uh, Joe Bubar here preaching. It's been a long time since we've seen Joe, and I'm kind of excited about having him back. Uh, I've been keeping him uh, informed about all the different uh, trials we've been having, so he's up to date, and, and I'm really looking forward to it. So, last time I was up here, we covered the common children's story of Daniel in the lion's den. Today, we're going to cover another children's story. Peter walking on the water. Something that we're all pretty familiar with. But first, first I want you to imagine with me, what if the group of apostles had an executive assistant, someone who planned and handled their daily schedule, an organizer for daily activities. And let's further imagine if this planning person, first thing in the morning, gave a summary of each day's upcoming events. So let's take the day when Peter walked on the water for an example and see what the morning briefing would have looked like before any of the day's events took place. Of course, this is a brief with the apostles only. Jesus would not need to attend one of these because he writes the plan, right? So perhaps it would have gone something like this. And for reference, this would be a good time to open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. This is the planner talking to the apostles. Okay, men, the first thing on your agenda today will be a debrief on the horrific death of Jesus' relative John the Baptist. It was a completely senseless murder. Herod's wife Herodias, who was formerly Herod's sister-in-law and who is still Herod's niece, had John schemed to have John's head cut off and then had the head brought out on a platter. It seems almost impossible that the man Jesus describes as out of all those born of women, there has not arisen any greater. It seems impossible that someone like that should die under these senseless circumstances. Terrible. It was just terrible. All right, the next thing on the agenda today is a little, and I'm sorry about the timing on this one, guys. It's kind of a spur-of-the-moment gathering this afternoon of anywhere between five and 20,000 people. You guys will be hosting, and you are being asked to provide the main meal. Please plan accordingly. The party starts in about eight hours. And finally, later on tonight, lasting virtually the entire night, you will all attempt to travel in a boat across the Sea of Galilee, rowing quite unsuccessfully, only only arriving at the middle of the sea by the end of the night. Then sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., what appears to be a ghost will be walking on the water 
near the boat, you all get a pretty good scare. In fact, you'll all be totally terrified. After the ghost sighting, Peter will get out of the boat, walk on water, but it'll be a short walk. He'll begin to sink. It'll be during high wind, waves, in the dark, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. He will start sinking. That's pretty much your day's activities. Are there any questions? Imagine if your day started like that. That was one day. If it was me, it would be hard to drag me out of bed, I'm sure. So now we know, we know how the apostles had spent their day. So we're going to jump right into the little impromptu gathering of five to 20,000 people right at the end of that. It's evening now, and we come to verse 22 of chapter 14 in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's catch up with the small group of Jesus' followers. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. First, let's remind ourselves about these little boats that the disciples, the disciples are getting into. If you've been in Sunday school, we've talked about them a little bit, what, the, what, the, what this little boat would be like. Back in 1986, there was a severe drought around the Sea of Galilee, a four-year drought, so the sea level went down a little bit, and it uncovered, uncovered one of these fishing boats from the first century. And so we have an idea of what one of these boats would have looked like. The boats would have been about 27 feet long, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's uh, the length of a pew. I'd have to walk it off. 27 feet long, about seven and a half feet wide, and the sides would have come up about four feet. So that's the kind of boat that they're getting in to set off out into the Sea of Galilee. And also one more thing, in the back of the boat there would have been a little place to take a nap. You know, because a lot of times a fisherman would fish all night. Right? We come across stories like that. And uh, in fact, there, there's that uh, one story that happens earlier than this event. It's easy to get these events confused. Don't do it. We have the event where there's a violent storm and Jesus is asleep in the, in the stern, in the back of the boat. And uh, the, uh, you know, we're familiar with that story. We'll talk just a little bit about it later. But they do have a little place to sleep in the back. Just, that's just a little extra detail. So why did Jesus send the disciples across the sea? Part of the reason, or at least one of the reasons that a lot of commentators mention, is that if you look in the Gospel of John, after the feeding of the thousands, the crowds realize, they're starting to realize that there's something special about Jesus, and they, they uh, want to seize him and make him king, right? But it wasn't time. So many commentators, in fact most, say that Jesus wanted to remove the disciples from that scene and get them out in the boat. He didn't want them involved in that. So that's one reason. I think a, uh, another reason, another reason I think Jesus was sending them away because he was going to be sending away all the crowds here pretty soon, all the thousands, because he needed time alone to pray. So I think that was part of the reason. And then the third reason I think he sent them away is because uh, Peter had an appointment to walk on the water. I think that's another reason. Need to keep to the schedule. Move on. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on a mountain by himself to pray. So sandwiched between these two amazing events, 
of Jesus feeding these thousands of people and then he's about to walk on water and literally spend, they're going to spend the rest of the night uh, in this next scenario. Jesus gets by himself so he can pray. Imagine how busy his day has already been so far. You know where I'm headed with this. We're headed towards a moment of guilt, right? Jesus, how busy this day was. And he sets aside, arranges a time so he can pray. How many times have we been just a little busy and we take it as an opportunity to skip prayer, right? There's a little guilt. Here's a little more. He's been up all day. He's going to be up all night. Wouldn't it have been a great time to sneak off and take a little nap? I mean, really, he's going to be up all night. How many times have you reached over and hit the snooze button on your alarm clock when you were going to get up and pray? Well, I'm just a little bit too tired. So look, we're, we're probably all guilty of that. Maybe the next time we're a little busy or the next time we reach for that snooze button, maybe we can just think back to Jesus being up all night, feeding the thousands, and maybe, maybe we'll just go ahead and take, take some time to pray. Let's move on. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Let me stop and ask a question. Are the disciples in God's will at this time? The There's only one answer to this. Jesus sent them out on the boat, so absolutely they are in God's will. There's no doubt about it. They are right where God wants them to be. And yet they are in a completely miserable situation. They've been up all night rowing. They've only made it out to the middle. And they're still not getting anywhere. Have you ever had anyone size up your particular situation? Maybe during a difficult time in your life? Jonathan's shaking his head yes. Thank you, Jonathan. And share with you the conclusion that maybe you are not in God's will for your life because things aren't going well. Or maybe, just maybe, you've done that to somebody else. Of course, sometimes it, it's painfully obvious when somebody has fouled up their lives and you know that they're having a hard time because they caused it, but it's not always that clear. So I know I personally need to be careful here. If you, if you can, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be going to verse 35. Second half of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in, sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. There's nothing pleasant about those situations, yet here they are in the heroes of the faith. They were in God's will at the time that they were suffering. I just want you to keep this in mind if, you're, if you have any friends who claim that having enough of the proper Christian faith will bring you nothing but pleasant times. I want you to think about these apostles out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. I want you to think about these people in the hall of faith in chapter 11 being sawn in two right in the middle of God's will. So we need to be careful. Sometimes things aren't going well. You're still doing exactly the right thing. Let's move on. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus is walking across the sea. I had to try to figure out what this would look like if I was there watching it happen. The language is clear. He's walking. He's not hovering. He's not floating. He's walking on the water. So if the, if the water is rough and the waves are continually rolling on the surface, two or three feet high, maybe even higher, what would it have been like to walk on top of the water? The only way I can figure the situation is that either Jesus' body became less dense and he was able to float on the water, or the water became more dense and he's able to walk on the water. One of those things had to happen, at least the best I can figure it. So right now you're probably thinking to yourself, man, you are overthinking this. Stop worrying about these little details. But this is not a parable. With a parable, there is always a danger that you can overthink it. You can try to figure out all the details, and that's not the purpose of a parable. Parables, you want to just get the main point. This happened for real. This happened in real time and space. I think it's okay to try to figure out exactly what was going on. So I imagine if Jesus is crossing the water, and what if the waves, you picture these waves kind of cresting and rolling, what if they just became hard right in front of him? He's just walking on these waves. It would be, picture sharp waves becoming frozen in time, Jesus wearing sandals, walking two or three miles across the Sea of Galilee. That would, it, it would be very dangerous. It would take forever. Even if there weren't no sharp edges, if it was just rolling waves two or three or four feet high, imagine Jesus walking four miles across that. It would have been two or three days later, right? that he would have gotten across there. So I don't, think, I don't think that's the way it happened. Of course, I'm speculating. I am not, I'm not trying to create some doctrine here. This is complete speculation. But the only way I can figure it is that right in front of Jesus, kind of a, a, a water sidewalk opened up, a hard sidewalk opened up, and he was just able to walk naturally just like he would have walked on land. I mean, face it, later on when we get here, when the, uh, when the disciples see him and they think he's a ghost, it doesn't say in a ghost was climbing over waves, making his way towards the, uh, towards the boat. He was walking 
So I think I'm just picturing, you know, just kind of like a sidewalk, walking straight ahead. Not biblical. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this is, this is how it had to happen. This is just the only way I can picture it happening. And when I do picture it, I can't help but think back to Genesis chapter 1, right in the very beginning. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Something about that just makes me think about Jesus right now walking across the Sea of Galilee. Let's move on. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost, they cried out in fear. So just when the disciples thought their long night out on the lake couldn't get any worse, now there is a ghost walking on the water. No doubt he's walking in the direction of the boat. When I consider how the disciples' day got started with the story of John the Baptist and his head removed from his body, being carried around on a serving dish, I can't help wonder if the disciples, like Herod earlier, weren't thinking about maybe John the Baptist coming back from the dead. It's hard, it's hard to put yourself in their place, what it would have been like seeing a ghost because we already know the story and we know it's not a ghost. We know it's the Prince of Peace. It's the Savior of the world. So it's really hard to put yourself in their place. But just for a minute, just for a minute, try to picture yourself being up all night long, fighting the wind and the waves. It's still mostly dark out there on the water. Picture yourself rocking back and forth in this boat, looking out over the water. At first you're thinking... Huh, what's that object I'm seeing out there? You probably blink really hard, maybe shake your head, hoping you're just seeing things, and then you open your eyes and you look again, and this time the object looks like it's even a little bit closer. You probably grab the guy next to you and say, hey, uh, do you see anything over there? And you're hoping his answer is no. You're hoping he says, man, you need some sleep. But instead, when he looks back at you, he looks like he's just seen a ghost, which he has. Soon, all the disciples are terrified. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. By the way, that it is I is the same as I am. If you've ever studied the Gospel of John, you're familiar with the I am, or even Genesis 3.15 in that area, the I am. Exodus 3.15, sorry. So immediately, Jesus tries to calm them down and reassure them. And we should notice something about this. If you think back to the other story, the other storm story we were talking about where Jesus was asleep in the stern, and the apostles, they wake him up and they say, what's the matter? Don't you care? We're all just about to die. You remember when Jesus, when he wakes up, he's not happy, is he? He's not happy at all. In fact, he rebukes them for their lack of faith. But here, they're all terrified. And Jesus 
immediately calms them down. He says, don't be afraid, it's okay. So what's the difference? It's okay if you see a ghost and you're terrified. That would be a perfectly natural reaction. It's not okay to wake up Jesus and say, hey man, you don't care about us. Things are out of control. You don't care about us. All right? It's very different. But it's okay to be afraid when you see something real scary. There's nothing wrong with that. The, 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 the words for fear, it's two different words for fear that's used in those two different stories. So I just want you to keep that in mind. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now this, this use of the word if, where Peter says, if it's you, fortunately some commentators helped me out with this. It's not the kind of if where you're saying, I don't know if it's you or not. If it is, it's not that kind of if. It would be more if, let's say you were on the way to church in the morning and you called me on a cell phone and said, hey Bill, I'm going to stop off at Walmart on the way to church. And I say, hey, if you're stopping at Walmart, if you're stopping at Walmart, pick me up a gallon of milk. I'm not doubting that you're going to stop at Walmart. I'm just saying, hey, if you're on your way, stop and pick me up something. That's the kind of if this is, according to the Greek scholars. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Notice that Jesus did not stop the wind from blowing. The high waves continued to roll across the sea. The boat with the remaining disciples is no doubt still rocking back and forth. I think Peter could still feel the wind on his face, probably the spray of uh, seawater blowing on him. He could probably still feel all that. But between Jesus and Peter, there was a straight path across the top of the water. All he had to do was look ahead at Jesus, stay focused on Jesus' command to come, and then start walking. So what happened? But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and, beginning, and began to sink. I find this idea of beginning to sink very interesting. I've been around water, oceans, rivers, swimming pools, lakes, my entire life. I've spent a lot of time on them. And there's one thing they all have in common. When I step into the water, I don't begin to sink. I mean, just think about it. If you're next to a swimming pool, next to the deep end, if you step off into the water, feet first, from the time your feet make contact with the surface of the water to the time your head is under the water is how long? It's like that, right? Loop. You don't have time to say, Jesus, help me. So I don't think, I don't think it was a case of Peter walking along, losing faith, and then down he went. I think he starts to sink slowly. Whatever, whatever material that water was that, was, that had become uh, somewhat solid, is now getting a little bit softer and Peter starts to go down into it and it's probably scaring him to death. Let me, now let me speculate a little bit more. You may not even think you've been to church today by the time I'm done speculating. 
You may think you've attended a uh, science fiction convention. Let's say the path was a couple of feet wide and 20 feet long. Let's say you go over on the uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee and you measure out in the sand a path a couple of feet wide and 20 feet long. You can picture that, right? Drawing that in the sand. And let's say you took Peter at the, at the beginning of that and you said, hey, uh, Peter, can you walk that path? Are you able to walk that path in the sand? Of course he would. He wouldn't even have to look down. He wouldn't have to give it one thought, right? He would just be able to walk straight ahead. Just like he could have when he was walking on water. But a shield of faith that is cracked doesn't just allow doubts to come in. It almost seems like it pulls. It's like a vacuum. It pulls doubts in. I think we've probably all been there. The doubts just keep on piling, them, piling up, almost like a, like a magnet is pulling them in when you start to doubt. It destroys your ability to perform an act that God has already made possible for you. Let me tell you a quick story. One time back in the mid-1980s, I had a job where one of the tasks was turning on a sump pump, a little switch. Now this switch, to get to the switch, you had to walk out on the top of a cement wall, and the cement wall had to be at least, uh, at least two feet wide, at least plenty of room, easily done by anybody. You had to walk out maybe 20 feet, the only problem was is on both sides of the top of this wall was straight down about 40 feet to concrete surface. And it wasn't just concrete down there on both sides, but down there there was all kinds of metal equipment that had things poking up that wouldn't feel very good if you fell and landed on them. In fact, it would, it would absolutely kill you, there's no doubt. And so I, me and another guy, they always, they always sent us out in pairs to do this job in case, you know, something didn't work out. <laughs> we went out to, to do this job, and, and, and before you walked out on this wall, you had to put on a harness, and you had to clip a safety uh, line from you to a, a metal cable just in case you slipped. Now, walking on a wall that, that wide, it is no problem at all. And so the guy I was working with, he, he, he was, uh, we called him grumbles. Grumbles. He never started a sentence and actually finished it. It always started out and ended with some unintelligible grumble. So we just called him grumbles. So he starts, he starts out walking on the top of this wall, and he's not going to harness up. I say, Mike, Mike, what are you doing? Aren't you going to harness up? He goes, I don't need a grumble. Okay, whatever. And he starts walking out on this, on this wall. And then he falls. Fortunately, he fell straight forward. I mean, he literally just went straight forward and fell face first on the top of that wall. And his arms went down around the side of the wall and gripped it, gripped it, and I spent at least the next two or three minutes saying, Mike, are you okay? Are you okay? I couldn't get any answer. I couldn't see any movement. He was just frozen. 
And then finally, he was able to compose himself enough to where he said, yeah, I'm okay. But he wasn't coming back. It was several more minutes before he finally inched his way back like a worm without getting up at all, just inched his way back holding on to the sides of that wall, and he finally came back. He was, un- he was uninjured. What's the point of that? The point of that is if that wall was two or three inches high, right? if I had to walk on that wall two or three inches high, I wouldn't give it a second thought. You wouldn't, even, if I was, even if I was to fall, I wouldn't give it a second thought. I would just get back up, right? But that man I was working with, he was so gripped with fear, he literally couldn't do anything but squirm his way back. So here you have Peter. You have Peter walking a path that is easily done, easily done, and he starts looking around. He starts thinking about the wind, and he's gripped by fear. He starts to sink. He cries out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him. Aren't you glad Jesus responds this way? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say, well, this will be a good lesson. This will be a good one. But instead, he almost instinctively, it seems instinctively, he reaches out and grabs him just the same way that that I'm sure all of us have experienced when you're walking next to, uh, maybe when your kids were young or when your grandkids are young and they're just learning to walk and they start to trip. You don't even give it a second thought. You reach down and you keep them up. I think that's how Jesus reached out and grabbed Peter. Instinctively, lovingly, gently, And then he says to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. When Jesus asked Peter, Why did you doubt? I think he's actually asking him to think about that. You know, I used to to think that this this was meant in the sense of, uh, like when you're talking to somebody and they've done something, you know, maybe not too bright, and you say, Why are you such a dope? You're not expecting them to answer you, right? You're not expecting them to pause later on and think, you know, why am I such a dope? I don't think Jesus is saying, Peter, why did you doubt? It's kind of a rhetorical question. I think he wants him to think about it. Why did I doubt? I could have made it all the way but I started looking at the wind. I took my eyes off Jesus. I started to get afraid. And I think uh, Peter could have taken that lesson for the rest of his life and when he was in situations where he was walking in faith and then the wind started blowing, fear started setting in. I think he he could remember back to Jesus saying, Peter, why did you doubt? And he could, okay, Focus, focus, focus on Jesus. Forget about all this, all, all this stuff happening on the sides. I think he meant, he meant it to encourage him later on. Finally, a word about timing. What if, here I go speculating again. This sounds even worse when I do this than when I, uh, when I, when I was writing this. But I'm speculating again. 
What if when they got back to the shore, they get out of the boat? What if James, what if James would have started walking toward the water as if he was going to walk right into the water? Somebody say, hey, James, what are you doing, man? Well, I'm going to walk on the water. I know it can be done now. I'm going to walk on the water. You think Jesus would have made the water hard right then so James could walk on the water? I don't think so. I don't think so. There's no wind. There's no waves. He's seen it done before. There's no faith required. That is just asking a genie to do a trick for you, right? There was one opportunity to walk on water. One time for a man to walk on water. And Peter took it. The rest of the disciples, they missed the opportunity. It's gone. It's gone. I think back to another, uh, another occasion in the Bible, back in Numbers 13 and 14, when the tribes of Israel are told, go spy out the land, check it out when you get back, then go conquer it. You all remember what happened. They, 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 uh, they said, yeah, this, this ain't going to work. Those guys are too big. They've got weapons. This will never work. It would have been better to die in Egypt. God was not happy with them. So a little while later, I'm going to read this right from, the, right from the text. A little while later, they approach Moses and they say, here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord, didn't, the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. They missed their opportunity. They had a time to go in faith. They were told to go. They didn't. And we know what happened to them. These guys, they actually went out and tried to conquer the Canaanites, and they got whooped. It didn't work out. They missed their opportunity. So how do you know when it is the right opportunity to step out of the boat? I think the only way to know is to be abiding in Christ all the way along. You need to be in prayer. I've said it over and over again. It's true. You need to be in prayer. You need to be, you need to be reading this book. You need to be doing what the writer of the, uh, the Hebrews in chapter 12, go ahead and jump over there. Chapter 12. Right at the beginning of chapter 12. The writer of the Hebrews says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin. Now keep in mind, chapter 12 comes right after chapter 11, which is the Hall of Faith chapter. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily. Okay? Reading the Word. Being in prayer. You cannot be in chronic high-handed sin. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. Okay? Looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So be doing these things, and then you will know when it's the right time to step out of the boat. You won't miss your chance. But if you are a born-again believer in Christ today, in here, there may be opportunities far closer to home for taking that step than waiting to walk on water at night during a storm. This may be simply you being obedient to the Word of God. If it's a command in this book, then the path is already open for you to get out of the boat now. If the book says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, then get out of the boat and start walking. If the book says, and it does, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, get out of the boat and start walking. Love your enemies, do not worry, and the list goes on and on. But don't look at all the reasons on why this won't work. Just start walking. Now is the right moment not to be missed. And if you're not a born-again believer in Christ this morning, Jesus is still holding out his arms and inviting you to come. Can you hear his voice calling you to step out in your very first act of faith? Come, he says. It doesn't matter how much baggage you're carrying. Just drop all of it and start walking towards him. It's not an easy walk. And it is definitely not a safe walk. But with that very first tiny little step of faith, you enter into eternal life and begin a journey that ends in heaven itself. Come. If you've never made that little step of faith, please consider coming up here and talking with me this morning after this service is over. I would love to talk with you. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. You know where we're at. You know if we're saved. You know if we're not saved, Lord. But everybody, everybody has a walk to do today, Lord either a walk in obedience or that first step of faith to be born again. Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would come down on us and show us where we should be walking. And Jesus, I pray that You would help us to keep our eyes focused on You and not be afraid of so many terrifying things out there, but just keep focused on You. And we thank you for this story of Peter walking on the water, Lord, that you put this in your word as an example to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.